Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. And today we have a great guest on the podcast, Professor William Clare Roberts from McGill University, Associate Professor of Political Science, author of Marx's Inferno, one of the best books of political theory in recent years. Uh, highly recommend it. And we're having him on today to talk about uh, a symposium at the LA Review of Books that Martin Hogland had about his book, This Life, which we've talked about on the pod before, and specifically The Exchange. It was a great symposium with a number of interlocutors uh, with Professor Hogland, but uh, Professor Roberts was one of them, and he wrote a response that Hogland then replied to, and we're going to discuss that because it's a very interesting discussion that shares a lot of similarities about what the left theoretically should focus on in terms of uh, you know, Marx's contributions to, uh, to understanding capitalism and socialism and to understanding the importance of freedom. But we talk about the differences between Hogland and Roberts when it comes to theoretically what freedom actually entails, both according to Marx and then according to each of them as they try to offer up theoretical, uh, principles and, uh, guidelines for the left to to learn from and apply today as we fight for um, you know a freer world really so I think it was a good discussion Ryan what'd you think yeah no it was great he's a very friendly gentleman and uh, he's Canadian Canadian so necessarily so I think it's a requirement yeah <laughs> so, uh, we yeah, had yeah. a we had a lot of fun um, before we get into it though I've got to note that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine as usual and so if you subscribe to the patreon at the ten dollar a month tier you get a free digital subscription and a discounted uh print subscription if you want it um but otherwise you know rate review share with your friends uh you know post notices on telephone polls around the country whatever whatever you feel like doing or just listen that's fine um we're we're here for you but without further ado let's get into our interview with william claire roberts well well welcome and uh you know i, I was talking to ryan about how marx's inferno and this life are the two most important works in political theory i've read in a while and so i was so delighted to to read the the you know london uh book review symposium that had you engage with each other and uh and so if we can start off just for those who haven't um, read your works or the symposium, um, you know, maybe start off with why you chose to engage with, uh, Professor Hogland and, and what you agree on, uh, before we get into your critique sure. a little bit, just to lay out kind of, uh, the contours of that, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, it was actually, so it was Martin Hagland who, who reached out to me. Uh, uh, I, hadn't seen his book. I kind of knew who he was, but, uh, but he, um, had written his book and was organizing a, a get together of people to talk about his book at Yale. Um, and he had encountered my book like late in the drafting process. So there's like, there's like a one footnote at some point in the book that's like, Sorry, I didn't get a chance to like read uh, Will Roberts's book before and like actually engage with it, but you know, 
that's kind of cool. Maybe we can get a chance in the future. So uh, anyways, he invited me to Yale to be part of this thing. And then that sort of turned into this symposium at the Los Angeles Review of Books. So um, I think that um, Martin and I have a number of things in common. I think we share a certain number of presuppositions. I, and I was very, I, I'm very attracted to aspects of, uh, of Martin's argument in this life. Uh, but I think that we also have some, some real differences. Um, and, uh, so I, hopefully those can come out. Um, I'd be happy to sort of sketch yeah. that out for yeah. you guys so, really quick. Uh, um, but I, just for the audience, yeah. I think broadly speaking, correct me, you know, if I'm wrong here, uh, both of you agree that um, Marx's understanding of freedom is, is crucial to the left and to the, the emancipatory project of the left. Yes. And um, you, you have some different understandings of what that might mean. We'll get to that, right? Um, yeah. but, but also that um, not only in getting Marx right, but in uh, using Marx and his understanding for um, that goal, for socialist ends, is a fruitful project that you both agree on. And so what we're trying to work through is where you differ in both what Marx's understanding of that project is and then how we should uh, apply it today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the I think first the the similarities in order to like uh, create the sort of common space, as it were, um, because I think. What I, what I most appreciated about Martin's book is his emphasis on, well, it's in the title, on this life, right? Um, and on the way in which, um, freedom has to be understood as a value that could only be realized in human life here on earth. And I, and I, that's easy to say and that's easy to agree to, right? But I actually think that has some bite because there is a tendency on the left, um, and, and especially on the, the, um, more radical ends of the left to, um, I think, uh, imagine a realm of freedom that would, in important regards, like not be one of this life at all, <laughs> right? Um, where, so, you know, there was this, uh, fully automated luxury communism, this, uh, this book coming out of England, you know, there, there are, there are these various models of, um, and, and attraction to socialism that comes out of a desire for something like overcoming scarcity, overcoming finitude. Yeah. Star Trek, Star Trek socialism, you know, and, and, that there's a long tradition of Star Trek socialism, right? Going all the way back to, you know, going back to Fourier and, and the notion of, you know, that, uh, if we could overcome our, our competition and fighting with human beings, that, you know, there would, the, the earth would be transformed into a sort of terrestrial paradise and the seas would be made out of lemonade and all of this sort of thing, right? Um, and, and, and I think what I appreciate about Martin's book is that he says, you know, very frankly and very forthrightly, like, that's nonsense. Freedom actually only means something for people who are going to die. <laughs> um, and, and there's like, if we were, if we were immortal, it would be a disaster. Like we don't, we don't, we shouldn't want to be immortal. We shouldn't want to overcome all of our limits because it's actually the limits of our lives. It's the scarcity of the time that we have 
that is the condition for things being meaningful for us, you know, for us caring about anything at all. Um, you know, there's a reason why vampires are immortal, right? Like that, the, and why they're all therefore completely psychopathic. They're miserable too. They're you know? miserable Even when they psychopaths. look as good as Brad Pitt and Tom exactly. Cruise, they're still no, they're, just miserable. No, it's a curse. Uh, like uh, the, a lack of limits would be a curse, right? Uh, a lack of, uh, of finitude would be a curse. Um, and so I, I really, I really like that aspect of Martin's book. And I think it's, I think it's worth, um, saying again and again. Um, yeah. where he and I differ is that I think he fundamentally has an ethical conception of socialism. Um, and, and fundamentally an ethical conception of capitalism too. Uh, that, uh, in, to an important extent, um, what capitalism is, is um, a sort of collectively constructed form of life that we all animate um, through our choices. And that if we acted differently and we valued things differently, um, that we could make a different world um, together. Um, and that, that fundamentally, this is about this is a, an ethical choice, um, an ethical choice about the sort of life we want to live and the sort of values we want to have. Um, and, and that's where I disagree. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, there's nothing bad about that. Like, <laughs> like I like the ethical appeal of, of socialism. I, I, um, I think there's, I think there's something deeply, um, satisfying about it. I mean, I, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of not to, not to bring a competitor in. I like your podcast too, but I, I'm a big fan of, uh, know your enemy. Uh, um, and I think one of the things that I really like about, uh, know your enemy as a podcast is that they, they bring a, like a very deeply ethical approach to, uh, to their socialism, to being on the left. Um, and, and so I, I find that very attractive. Um, but I also think it undersells sort of the problems that we are actually facing that, uh, that it, if it were, if, uh, if socialism were fundamentally only a question of ethics or if, if capitalism were only a, uh, a question of ethics, um, then, then we would be in less of a pickle than we are. Um, and, um, I think, I think the problem with conceiving of socialism the way that, uh, Martin does in his book and in his exchange with me, um, is that he, uh, doesn't, isn't able to think about the distribution of power in society. Uh, isn't able to think about the different, the way in which we would have to invent and create and sustain new institutions, um, that would, uh, work in a fundamentally different way. Um, and I, I think that's where, um, that's where socialists, um, and people on the left, um, need to be, um, focusing their attention. It seems like one could uh, maybe uh, an obvious objection, perhaps too obvious. Me not me being a, 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 a just a mere mere journalist, not even not any kind of political theorist. <laughs> um, I haven't even read the the last volume of Capital for crying out loud. Uh, 
to to conceive of like like capitalism as an ethical system and like socialism as an as an ethical system if you if to just like set it up that way you know you could like capitalism is you know in this sense socialism in this sense could could that not be a, a just like a, a sort of political motivation that you're you're saying like capitalism is is a pro is a product of bad moral choices and socialism would be a product of better moral choices. So we should set up. So, so we should take like concrete steps policy wise. Mm -hmm. We should, we should like have a revolution or, or something like that, you know, like, like we should aim at the thing. So rather than it's that it being like capitalism as I think the critique you're sort of saying is like capitalism emerges, mm -hmm. you know, because of choices and socialism could emerge if we just had different choices and that's sort of unrealistic but you, it seems mm -hmm. like you could also conceive of it as saying like this is our sort of our ideal theory like thing we should be aiming towards and so we should structure our our actual concrete uh movements and and such that we are aiming in that direction you know like do you see do you see what i'm saying there uh yeah i think so i think so so um um, and uh, but I think it raises a, an interesting set of questions, right? Because one of uh, so I want to mention two things in response to that. Um, first of all, I think it's important to say like capitalism did not emerge from um, anybody having a project yeah. of like creating uh, a society in which the capitalist mode of production prevailed. Right. Um, um, as it were, capitalism emerged accidentally. Right. <laughs> um, it emerged out of a whole bunch of different projects aiming at different things um, that ended up sort of coalescing into a set of institutions um, that ended up being very powerful in a particular way. Um, and and I think that I think that itself historically is um, is an interesting fact, um, and one that actually so when Marx articulated what he called scientific socialism, uh, right? Um, he th thought along similar lines, right? That in fact um, socialism wasn't going to emerge. Out of, um, it wasn't going to get designed beforehand. We weren't going to like figure out what the institutions of socialism were, figure out what we wanted to aim for, and then try to bring it about. Um, because, um, in fact, the, the institutions of socialism would emerge sort of organically out of the movement of the workers themselves. Right. So it was, it was the, the movement of workers in the 19th century and their tendency towards socialism, um, that Marx, um, you know, sort of used as his, like he thought there was something promising there. He thought that they were headed in the right direction and he wanted to affirm their movement. So, and I think that one of the crises that we face to some extent on the left these days is that um, the workers movement doesn't seem to be uh, a, it's not as strong as it once was <laughs> um, B it's not as 
um, explicitly um, anti, uh, it's not as explicitly antithetical to the, the ruling state um, and the current organization of the economy as it might have been uh, in the 19th century. So I actually think like our situation is an interesting one because for socialists today, there it's not obvious that we can piggyback on a, an objective movement in the direction of some post-capitalist organization of the economy. Um, and I think that pushes us back on the need for some explicit um, sort of theoretical work and practical work and experimental work um, regarding what sort of post-capitalist institutions um, could look like. So for me, um, precisely because um, socialism did not successfully emerge organically from a bunch of uh, workers' experiments um, and a movement that was not, uh, you know, sort of theoretically directed. For precisely that reason, I think that pushes us back on the need for doing some theoretical work. I guess that's how I think. Right. And can I um, push you a little bit on the the Please. conception you take Hogland to have about capitalism and socialism being ethical? Because I, I think yeah. – He's being Hegelian about it, and, and you know, for, for our audience, right? So, so like, it's not like he doesn't believe in, in a materialist understanding of how history develops, right? Like, it's not like he thinks people will read his book and then socialism will happen or communism will happen, right? Right, right, right. right. But, but the project you just you just described, I think he'd be on board with, and I think he means to say that right now under capitalism, we all have a shared form of life, whether we call ourselves capitalists or not. Mm -hmm. We all must structurally in this historical context admit that profit comes first just because we have no choice. We are forced to in order to live, right? Like we, we can't, you know, the, the many jokes, right? Uh, we can't individually opt out of capitalism and so forth. Uh, I think part of what the confusion might be with his ethical claims is that he just thinks that whatever we're describing in post-capitalism, whatever that is, will have to have occurred where we have a shared form of life that is not that. That, that is actually one that he's trying to outline. Um, and that, that isn't going to occur because of ideas necessarily, right? But yeah. that will have to be what our consciousness looks like in some way. I don't know. So, so what are your thoughts on his response to, to, to you um, on that point? Yeah. So I think that's, that's spot on. That's exactly what he would say. That's exactly what he does say. Um, and, and I think that's exactly where, uh, it, sh it sharpens the, the point of our disagreement. Um, because I think that capitalism is not a form of life. Actually, <laughs> so okay, that's helpful. That's a helpful clarification. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and I think that's uh, so to to sort of explain what I mean by that. So, um, at one point in I, this is in his response to me, I believe uh, he says that, um, and this is a quote. He says, "Under capitalism, we learn to produce in terms of what is profitable." Whereas under democratic socialism, we will learn to produce in terms of what enables social individuals to flourish 
and how can we satisfy our needs in a responsible way? And then he continues, under capitalism, we learn to work in terms of how can I survive or how can I get rich? Whereas under democratic socialism, we will learn to work in terms of which occupations make sense for me to pursue in light of my abilities and the needs of the society of which I'm a part. Um, so I think that description of the contrast between capitalism and socialism is the wrong one to draw. Because, because I think that um, under capitalism, we actually learn to produce and to work for all sorts of reasons, including um, what enables social individuals to flourish and how we can satisfy our needs in a responsible way and which occupations make sense for me to pursue in light of my abilities and the needs of the society of which I'm a part. That is, I think that capitalism doesn't persist because it cultivates purely instrumental or selfish motivations in people or because it drives us to like put profits before people. I think it persists because it's actually indifferent to our personal motive. <laughs> um, and it rewards, sure. it rewards productivity and profitability, even if they're motivated by social responsibility or a sense of duty to humanity or a burning devotion to social justice. Um, so does that make sense? Like, I, so one of my colleagues, yeah, 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 yeah. one of my colleagues at McGill, uh, uh, Christoph Pilk, uh, he, he has a new book uh, out uh, that's argues, and I disagree with the book, I think in a number of ways, but it's useful for me right now because he has this book that argues that in advanced capitalist economies, um, market success increasingly requires the credible appearance of not being interested in market success. Mm, right? right. That sure. is that. So, and I, and it, I mean, Hagelin might be a case in point, right? He's very successfully sold the idea that we have to radically transform our values away from caring only about whether or not something will sell. Right. And, and that's yeah. not supposed, yeah. that's not supposed but, to be like a gotcha. Doesn't this, right. It's, I'm not accusing him of hypocrisy get, or something so I, like that, but no, no, yeah. I'm going to try to, to, to play Hoglan for a minute. Doesn't yeah. that get to his point about Hegelian mutual recognition yep. versus mutual disrecognition and that in capitalism, we fundamentally are not able to, <laughs> to recognize ourselves and who we authentically are. We have all these, this distinction right. between appearances, right? And, and isn't that part of the, of the fundamental problem of capitalism and how we're not truly free for, for Hogland, right? I mean, I, I do, I, I think you're right. I like think we convince that, ourselves, we convince yeah. ourselves. I'm a social justice warrior. I just happen to take the high paying, you know, nonprofit job or whatever it is, but like, I'm actually serving the common good here. And like, isn't that disjunction between the real function of nonprofits and my putative individual motivation? Isn't that the disconnect that Hogland says we have to overcome? Um, yes. And I think that. The, 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 the difficulty with putting the problem that way, um, is that there is no standard for authenticity, right? That doesn't rest on someone or another saying, well, you're being authentic or you're not, right? It, like, like, um, we we live in a social world and and regardless yeah. of whether it's a capitalist social world 
or a socialist social world or or whether it right. was a feudal social world or, you know, I, like the 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 difference between how we appear to others and how we appear to yeah, ourselves, yeah, yeah. the stories we tell ourselves about what motivates us versus how others are going to interpret our motives, um, that sort of process right. – that's that's gotta stay, right? Like no, we, I, we can't. I'll agree, and then I want to let yeah. Ryan jump in because he's too courteous. <laughs> uh, but like, isn't that about? But isn't that the distinction between alienated social relations and non-alienated social relations? Right. So so for Hogland, right? If actually you tell me I'm being a shitty teacher or a shitty friend or or whatever, a bad lover. Uh, and there's no it, to bring in to bridge your understanding of freedom as non-domination, and there's no domination mm-hmm. there right. that that is actually distorting that relationship. Uh, isn't that an actual uh, like community of social relations that is a good way of affirming our commitments and understanding meaning and so yeah. forth? Uh, to br- to bring in maybe we should bring in your non-domination uh, understanding as well. Yeah. yeah, I'll just say really quickly before we let Ryan jump in back in, but like I think that yeah. So for me. Um, the question of whether or not we, you know, can, um, uh, sort of share a mind, whether we can openly communicate with one another, um, the prior, there has to be a prior question, uh, a question of, well, what sort of power relations obtain, um, amongst us, right? Um, and if there aren't relations of domination if there aren't if there if there aren't relations where you know you can um uh sort of unilaterally punish me uh for saying the wrong thing or if there aren't if there aren't relations where like i have to like watch out what i say um in order to you know try to stay safe then at least we're in a position where each of us should be able to speak our minds. We should be able to be honest with right. one another. But I think that, like, you know, you live in a, you know, we have families. We do live, we do have contexts where that aren't defined by um, relations of domination. And I think we know that inter- interpersonal relations, there are still going to be other reasons there are still going to be strategic considerations. There are still going to be reasons of, of non-self-transparency. There are still going to be other reasons why we're not always going to completely share a mind with somebody else, why we're not going to uh, necessarily um, communicate openly or even our open communications are going to lead to, you know, misunderstandings and all sorts of disagreements. So I, I just don't, I, I worry that the conception of, um, socialism as a form of life and of capitalism as a form of life, um, um, overemphasize the possibility of something like collective self legislation. Um, right. Something like a, uh, a mutually recognizing, yeah. mutually transparent, um, uh, social situation in which um uh everybody sees what everybody else is doing and can sort of vouch for it all 
And that's why, just to put a last thought before uh, we let Ryan in here, uh, and that's why you think freedom as non-domination is is a preferable yeah. focus or understanding because its its target is more the the domination that we need to fight against rather than this trickier sphere where we're trying to do something that we're not even sure how that's going to work out at all, right? Exactly. That's right. That's right. I just have, I guess, a side question, real quick. I, th- I uh, before we move on uh to to something else but when you were talking about you know sort of hoglands you know his conception of capitalism and then how like actually you know it, it's not really as bad for at least a lot of people as he sort of makes out you know like uh like there there people do have actual like abilities to do you know things that they like and it, and it reminded me of and maybe you can just sort of of comment on this the polanyi double movement you know, argument, if you've heard of that guy, mm-hmm. I'm sure you have um, yeah, yeah. the like basically, you know, the 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 core ethical tenet of capitalism is just like pure self-interest is so socially corrosive that it actually can't survive. It, it just like eats the society to pieces. And so you get, you know, these defensive reactions. Right. And the only place that you ever actually saw raw Total capitalism unleashed is like the Congo Free State, you know, where half the population is massacred <laughs> to get, uh, right. you know, rubber out of the trees and ivory and whatnot. So, like, I don't know, is it is there is that even is that just a a, a, a sort of clarification or 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 I even disagreeing with you at all? <laughs> no, I so yeah, so I, that that's helpful because, um, I I think. I can, I think I have a slight disagreement with Polanyi, um, which clarifies this disagreement with Hagland because, um, I, I didn't want to say that, you know, the fact that people can, you know, pursue the, some people can pursue their calling under, uh, capitalism or that, um, or that people can, you know, believe in the work that they're doing at their job and think that, you know, they're really, you know, doing the thing that's important and worth doing and makes the world a better place. I don't want that to come across as me saying, oh, well, it's not so bad for everybody. <laughs> Rather, what I want to say is Bre- breaking, um, uh, b- breaking <laughs> William Clark Roberts loves <laughs> capitalism. That'll be the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to, what rather, I think that, uh, like that one of the, one of the difficulties we face, um, is precisely that the, uh, you know, to use the Polanyian, uh, language, right? At least. That the double movement, that the, 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 the social aspect of things does, it's not actually contrary to the existence and flourishing of capitalism. It actually, like, it can be precisely the thing that, um, feeds into capitalism, mm-hmm. right? It can be precisely the thing that sustains capitalism, right? And, and what that means is that there's sort of a, there's just a fundamental, uh, break in perspective between the perspective of me pursuing my projects and the perspective of like the social system 
of of the of society that's ruled by the capitalist mode of production. I can pursue all sorts of different projects um, within capitalism, and I can be motivated by all sorts of socialist principles. I can be motivated by all sorts of humanitarian principles. I can be I can be um, motivated by a really existentially authentic sense of what is meaningful in life. And the capitalist social system can recoup all of that and be like, that's awesome. I can make a, we can make a profit off of that. Right. (laughs) Um, And, and we can, we can make that, we can feed that into a social system that thrives on the, that drives people to the brink of, of life uh, that, uh, that, you know, uh, sucks up enormous amounts of, of surplus labor, just massive amounts of overwork that, uh, disposes of, uh, you know, just entire populations as, uh, surplus, uh, life. Um, and, and the social system is not at all bothered by, um, like our goodwill. Um, or or our authentic uh, um, humanitarian motivations. And isn't that only true because it's just your project? But if it's a collective project that actually is concerned with, right, non-domination and with, uh, you know, checking these forms of tyranny in the workplace and otherwise, and, and then capitalism has a problem, if, if we could reify capitalism, right? Or, or then, there's, then there's kind of conflict. Or, or how would you... Uh, yeah, yeah, well... If, if there can be, if our collect, if we can have a collective project that can create actual institutions of production. Right. That don't feed into that. Then yes. Right. But but there, there has, it has to be a self, it has to be a, 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 like a collective project that issues in institutions that are able to produce life. Um, along different lines. Now, where do you, where do you, cause this is actually where I wasn't quite sure where and how you disagree with Hogland, cause Hogland is, is, you know, a collective ownership of the means of production, obviously. And, um, and he had a question about your admittance of, you know, private property and profit, uh, in, in some way. Right. Um, but then when I was reading again, Marx's Inferno, uh, which is great to reread, by the way, um, you know, you clearly say that Marx, you know, wants to abolish, uh, wage labor and, uh, and there has to be a free association of, of, of you know, producers, basically workers cooperatives, as, as I understood it, okay. right? Um, and, and so I'm actually confused where you two disagree on, on, uh, on that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think the, 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 the disagreement is, is, it's pretty easy to, to pinpoint, uh, because, um, and and I will say, like, first of all, the, there is this difference in perspective between – so my book and, and Martin's book are operating at slightly different levels in the sense that, like, mine is fundamentally, like, exegetical, right? Like, I'm like, right. what right. is Marx's argument? About – this is what he's and, about. And I think, I think Marx's argument is worth taking very seriously. But it's not – that doesn't necessarily mean Marx's argument is my argument. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, whereas, whereas Hagland is speaking in his own voice. Um, um, I – but I do think that um, – Marx's argument, there's a difference between Marx's argument and Hegel's argument also, which is that, 
Um, Hagland is saying uh, that a democratic socialist um, um, world would be one in which there was, yes, collective ownership of the means of production. And that would mean there was no private property, uh, no um, selling or buying in the market, and no possibility of profit, right? Um, and I think that is going too far um, because the, you know, the the market in labor power is what, according to Marx, is the foundation of um, commercial society. You know, mar- the market becoming the overwhelming thing. Uh, it's because there's a market in labor power that every bit of wealth takes the form of a commodity. So getting rid of the market in labor power, I think that's, that's the sine qua non of socialism. Like you have to, you have to be committed to that. Um, but what consequence that has for, um, the world of commodities, uh, uh, the world of private property, that's slightly different, right? So obviously there were, there were commodities before there was a market in labor power. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there could be commodities, um, and profit, um, in a world in which there was no labor power again. Um, in other words, you could have worker cooperatives, um, operating, uh, the means of production, um, in common. And that might be, that might, um, create, you know, the, the world of wealth, uh, you know, that's the sort of basic social bundle of goods that human beings need to, need to survive and carry out their, their lives, right? So you might have, that might guarantee everybody, uh, you know, food, um, and housing, um, and, and access to transportation and the infrastructure of common life, right? But then, there might be that might leave a lot of room for people to also pursue other projects that might you know involve even the 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 creation of commodities and and might involve markets and might involve profits um above and beyond that robust world of social uh security right. so and i'm i'm agnostic about that yeah so, yeah, yeah. yeah so follow up follow up question just on that in this system that you're envisioning, do the choices of the workers in the in the cooperatives about what to produce and how much to produce and how to produce it, is that like democratically decided just within that firm and then uh, influenced by like market forces? Or are they collaborating yeah. with other cooperatives democratically to to because I think yeah. the latter is more what, what Hog Hagland Hogland is, yeah. is talking about, right? Yes, I, I I think that's more what Hagland is talking about, and that's the like, and that's clearly what Marx was talking about also. Um, and I think the I think there is I think there is an open question here, like a question that uh, like yeah. socialists need to spend time thinking about, which right, is right. Yeah. Um, if I mean, first of all, I think you know trying to figure out basically how to run a large scale um, industrial economy without a labor market is already 
Yeah, tough. Like stuff. that's a big. That's a big. That's tough, right? There's no obvious <laughs> yeah. way to do that, right? Yeah. There's no obvious way to do that. Um, if you can solve that problem, right? Um, then the the question is whether, uh, like, would markets any markets that existed amongst different uh, cooperatives would those be um, like really the would those be a problem or not right if if everybody has if everybody has social security if every if nobody um right. is going to be thrown out in the street uh no one is going to lose access to food uh no one is going to be driven to the brink um then do markets could markets continue to function but in a sort of like they would be, uh, they would be basically like a game, right? They would be something that, yes, you would play the game of markets, but it wouldn't, your yeah, life it would be a better. way of, I think it would be a way of determining people's priorities and consumption choices, right. uh, right. as where Hoglin wants to say that should be done through some democratic process, something like that. Right. Exactly. And I, and I just think, I just think that's, that has to be an open question. Like, I, like that, that's the sort of question that just, it cannot be answered by appealing to, um, the idea of freedom itself. It can't be, it can't be, uh, solved by appealing to the notion of self-realization. Uh, I'm going to appeal to Ryan, who's a policy wonk, and see see what he thinks. <laughs> Actually, I, d I did have a, a question there for you. Um, you know, you you, t you talk Please. about like labor markets. Um, you know, in a number of European countries, there there is de facto. I mean, in a formal sense, no labor market. Like, if you have a really high union density, I think in the Nordics, it's like uh, like 60s, up to 80 percent uh, union membership, and so those. Are the 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 wages there are negotiated through collective bargaining, not through market competition. Then you have other countries where you have like a sectoral bargaining, you know. So then the the government, like mm -hmm. um, they, I mean, people are probably familiar with this. You know, you have your your uh, tr your trade unions on one side, and then the representatives of business on the other, and right. then the government then extends that contract over the entire sector, whatever they come up with. Um, right. So how does that, um, what, I mean, first, what do you think of that? And then maybe you can sort of get into, um, what your idea of a, a social republic and like how, like, would something like this fit into your, your, your scheme there or, or what? Right. So, um, I am by contrast, not a policy wonk, right? <laughs> so, um, I like my, uh, my perspective, I guess, is to say, Two things. Um, one, um, to like, I'm, I'm open to it, right? Like, like to me, like this is the question is whether those sorts of, um, arrangements can be universalized, right? And I, I guess that's the, like the, I think the, the pushback on something like the Nordic model that, um, I hear, um, and that I think is worth taking seriously is the, the pushback on the, you know, that basically the, the Nordic model it was able to be established and is able to, um, sort of survive because the Nordic countries existed in a particular niche 
of the global economy. Um, and like that, that it's only possible insofar as a lot of cheap manufacturing, um, is getting, uh, you know, being taken care of, um, in the global South and that the, the global division of labor, um, benefits the, the Nordic countries, um, in a way that make that not universalizable. I'm not in a position to, yeah, to you should just decide whether or not that's mean, a good. <laughs> we did an episode on labor aristocracy and we totally debunked it. So you just take our word for it. No, oh, but, but, uh, okay, okay. You, but, y'all, but, y'all, no, but seriously, like the, the work of, of Charlie Charlie Post has, has got good stuff on this, I think. Um, but Brian, do you want to? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think those those are live those are live debates that I worry sure, about. Yeah. You know, so those I think those are things questions that we have to ask and and inquiries yeah. that we have to um, in, uh, like carry out. Um, and then the second thing I would say is just then for me, the question becomes like, uh, and this is, this is my social republicanism. Like, um, for me, the question is, um, you know, what sorts of powers are people subjected to? Like, uh, what do people have reason to be afraid of in their lives? Um, and, are there things that are there institutions that can be put in place to make it so that um people are insulated from those powers that they might otherwise have to be afraid of right and to me that that's that's an entirely that's a tractable empirically um uh you know answerable sort of question right you can actually look at a society and you can you can uh examine whether or not people have good reason to be scared of other people's decisions um and then yeah. you can ask about you know uh, and i and i think that i think it's clear that um the nordic countries people have a lot less reason to be scared of what other people can do to them um and i think that that i think that uh, from a perspective of non-domination, that has to count, right? That that has to count for something. You have to take that very seriously. Can, can I just follow up quickly? Because I think yep. that's, that's great because the idea is there, the kind of the, the end or the norm that, that you can empirically measure is what is instrumental toward that goal of non-domination and, and toward, yep. uh, you know, relieving people of different forms of domination. But, you know, talking about fears, don't you get into the problem? Look at the the crazy Republicans and people who are scared of critical race theory and scared of right. of like you know tra- trans people reading children's books or something. I mean, so so yeah. I, could, couldn't you have this problem politically if people say, "Well, I'm the Democrats are are crazy commies," right? Um, yeah. uh, how how do you reconcile with that, right? Yeah, no, and that's why that's why you have to like. Um, it's not just a matter of what are people scared of, but what do people have good reason to be scared of. Um, right. Um, and I, so I, I think, I think the, the people like, yeah, Republicans are scared of, you know, the, the trans person in the classroom. Um, and I have no problem saying that that's a completely unreasonable fear. <laughs> um, um, we, people, uh, you know, American politics is driven by all sorts of fear all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, fear of crime, uh, fear of immigrants, uh, fear of, uh, you know, 
fear of the commie under the bed. Uh, like that, like a politics of fear has been, you know, very central to, uh, U.S. politics for a very long time. Um, and I don't want to say, oh, yeah, that's the way to go, right? Yes, we should out be asking, what are we afraid of? And we should minimize fear. Uh, because I think that's a losing, that's, that's, you, uh, that's a chasing a phantom, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you, but you can say, like, what are, what are, um, like the uncontrolled powers that people would actually reasonably be fear, uh, scared of. Um, yeah. and, and, and that, that's tractable and that you can deal with. Well, maybe if we actually guarantee or say as a principle that everyone in the world will have their needs met, right? Like fr from each according yeah. to her, her abilities to each according to her needs, maybe a lot of those fears aren't a problem. Even the Scandinavian countries have xenophobia and fear of, of the other because they want to protect their their quality of life from the intruders. And so I don't know. I, it does come. I see like why Hoglund says, look, everyone needs to realize we're all mutually dependent on each other. And if, if we have yeah. this kind of like worldview where it's like me against you that that those irrational fears are always going to justify all kinds of violence and terrible stuff right yeah. yes yeah absolutely and i and i i completely agree with uh martin about that right that that um i mean one of the things that the thing that capitalism has done <laughs> is that it has uh it has tied all of our ships together right we we we, if one of us goes down, like, uh, it hurts all of us, right? We, we are, uh, and the global interdependency and the need to solve, um, the problems that confront us, especially, um, the climate crisis, the need to, to confront those and solve them together, uh, is obvious, I think, to anyone who's paying attention. Um, so, uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. It, it strikes it strikes me there's a possible tension with what the between what you've been saying here about like doing sort of surveys of you know like wh what people have reason to fear and say ah in Russia it's much worse than in you know Norway and so Norway's got a sort of better setup uh, <laughs> you know they don't have a police state uh, no wars of aggression at least not not yet. Um, but you were talking before about the need for like social, like like a theorizing, you know, theorizing about a sort of ultimate end state, and this seems like a kind of empirical, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, sciency sounding, you know, system that that where you know you're kind of like sort uh, 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 groping around, you know, for for like things that could be an improvement, and that seems like fairly pragmatic in a sense. To where you you're just sort of you know you could say uh, like all right um, what are the what are, what are the Danes doing for instance on on uh, leisure time how come they work like 500 hours a year less than Americans do well they have a bunch of laws that say mm -hmm. you know you can only work 1300 hours everyone gets five weeks of guaranteed paid vacation if, you know if you're employed blah blah there's a big right. complicated bureaucracy right. and so what we should do is set up a political movement to capture power of the government and we should write these laws you know so like uh, how is this how is your thinking different from like what what would seem to be like a logic like a normal kind of social democratic uh, or democratic socialist, you know, approach to 
you know, political organizing and movements? Um, I mean, I think I think my perspective is very open to that. Um, but also, um, I would say that um, I think the problem that um, democratic socialists run into um, is that two things. Um, one, um, I think, uh, there is, so there, there's one, there's one far left, uh, critique that I worry about, um, which is the sort of, um, concern coming out of, uh, sort of, uh, sort of the left Brennerites, as it were. If you know Robert Brenner's, uh, some of Robert Brenner's work, um, one of the things that he has uh, pushed is the notion of a sort of long downturn. Basically, the idea that since the 70s, the uh, um, rate of um, economic expansion in advanced capitalist economies has slowed. Um, and, um, the, what this, I think the worry that this raises for, um, some folks on the far left is that, um, efforts to capture the state in these conditions, um, are doomed to failure because, um, there's not going to be a possibility. Basically, any social democratic project, like any liberal project, um, actually relies upon, um, an expanding economic pie, um, in order to make, um, sorts of deals between capital and labor. Um, and that without a, 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 an economic pie that is expanding quickly enough in order to make some of these sort of historic deals, uh, cross class deals, um, that any social democratic project is doomed to failure. Um, and that in the current, uh, um, global economy in which advanced capitalist societies are not expanding as quickly, um, those, those opportunities for um, some sort of, you know, a, a, a new New Deal or a, um, a, a Nordic style um, uh, welfare state in a place like the United States, um, those are those are pipe dreams, right? I, and I worry about that criticism. I think that that's a I think that's a serious thing to to worry about. Um, I also worry about more of a, um, a sort of anti-imperialist critique, which is that fundamentally, um, no, like, precisely because the United States, um, is the globally hegemonic, um, capitalist superpower, um, it is never going to be amenable to a sort of um, capture by forces, progressive forces that would uh, would be sufficient to um, overcome it. Basically, the forces of reaction um, are so strong in the United States um, that it's better to devote our time and energy to um, building 
anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist um, um, country forces in um, in the global south. Um, and I like I think there are reasons to worry about that also. And but those are hard choices. Like those those are the sorts of things that you can agree about what the end goal is. Um, and still reasonably disagree with one another about where to spend your time um, and what sorts of yeah. uh, strategies to engage in. Um, and uh, so I, 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 this is where I become, you know, a bit ecumenical and nonpartisan. Yeah, so. no, I, this is very important, especially for our listeners. Look, look you're in the, you know, the, the, the beautiful utopia known as Canada. So that's different. Right? But we're... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but we're stuck in the United States here to, to the South. Uh, just kidding. I know of uh, all the problems with, uh, with Canada as well. But uh, we have listeners here who, you know, okay, they could just go move to South America and be part of the pink tide and fight for, for um, you know, uh, emancipation there. But insofar as we're, we're bounded in the communities we're a part of here, right, in this country, in these communities, what should our relationship be? Um to the state to uh, does this mean that we just do mutual aid do do we concern ourselves with electoral politics right. where where is our energy spent and these are obviously contested things that maybe that the answer is just yeah. be part of these conversations um but right. i think this is a really important uh, question for our audience because and I, I don't know what what you think Ryan but like there is a danger in in just seeding these sites of struggle for the reasons that are legitimate. Like it US is this imperialist global hegemon, right? Like it is. But does that mean we don't contest uh domestically or or in terms of what the US does to other people? Um, or aren't we more responsible to to deal with how power is deployed here, right? Both in corporate power and state power, right? I guess that's 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 like a, a important question I think that on the left we need to take. Yeah, up. on the on the uh, growth point, you know, I think that that the um I'm convinced at least you can find the details in in my book uh but that that the growth slowdown happened because of uh neoliberalism and and capitalism that they basically ran out of that they're standing on their own feet or their their own hands rather um that you in particular you had growing and growing inequality and uh that is creating a, a situation where you can't find any uh customers you have a systematic shortfall of demand because all the money is going to the top um and that and it follows that doing like a sort of progressive you know any kind of egalitarian uh, distribution of resources you could actually restart the growth and growth, you know, you could say a growth in productivity per hour worked, which I think that's what we really want to get. We don't want to just like output for its own sake. We want, you know, uh, widely spread output in the form of, of more wages for the working class and more leisure time. Um, and yeah, on the, I mean, on the imperialism thing, you know, like, like I, I don't buy the, the sort of third worldist argument, you know, that like, uh, Norway is rich or Finland is rich because it's somehow plundering like Indonesia. I think the point about that's like, you know, what's been so terrible for socialism in the, in the global South has been that the military and the CIA are around there like cooing all of the freaking like the socialists and, Ch you know, Chile and whatnot. And I think it tends to suggest that 
what one of the most uh, the the most important uh, questions for the you know the uh, socialism around the world or any kind of you know democracy is who is in charge of the United States. You know that that like this, this they're in Chile right now. They're rewriting the constitution and Biden for having you know many bad foreign policy things some some good i think the best in a long time he's at least letting that happen you know there's not a whisper that they're going to be overthrown and i think if trump takes power again that that's really an open question you know you'd be just total full throttle on all the most deranged uh uh latin american right wingers um but you know uh <laughs> certainly you know the balance of power in the united states because it's so strong uh, really just has massive impacts. And this, you know, incidentally, as a final comment, this is the the point about the Nordics is that they they could do that because they were they did not get crosswise with the United States. You know, they were subject to imperialism in a way, but it was, you know, it was like being locked into the to the American block. And that allowed them to make a, a lot of, you know, reasonable sort of compromises in their in their own sense. You know, and I think that that if if we're aiming for the stars here, we ought to be able ought to be aiming to give that sort of flexibility to everyone else, and not just be like, "Well, Norway can do it." But if you're in Bolivia, then we're sending the troops in. If you you know so much as think about it, yeah, I guess my like uh, this is one place where I feel like I am um, as a as a political theorist, I have very um strong uh like opinions uh about like the basic principles right like i i have very strong i have very strong uh intuitions about uh the concept of freedom that is useful for socialists um and uh and then at the level uh of politics I'm as confused as everybody else. <laughs> and, and I mostly, I, I want to be, um, I want to be as ecumenical as possible and to like listen to as many, uh, left voices as I can and to try to, try to like distill what I take to be, you know, sort of the, the most reasonable version of, uh, of a lot of, uh, left positions. Because if there's one thing, um, I mean, the left is very, the left is very good at being divided, um, and, yeah, and very yeah, good, yeah, and being very good at you know being quite obnoxious about attacking one another. <laughs> no um, one's better at being an asshole yeah, than uh, you know, exactly. we, we leftists dominate. Yeah, yeah, um, and and that's partly dictated by a position of weakness, right? Like we we. Um, but I, but I do think that um, I do think we need to, in that position of weakness, try to try to cultivate the 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 dispositions of 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 you know um, dialogue and listening to one another and 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 trying to work together on the on the things that we can that we can agree sure. on. Sure. So can I ask a last question then that that goes unless no, go Brian, were you going to jump in on that? That that actually goes right to that because I think that's so important. We are so divided. It is such a crucial time for the left to to unite and have solidarity uh, and be ecumenical. Um, and 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 so I want to ask about like where you think theoretically 
Um, there are certain places that we just cannot go. And then where do you think there is that capaciousness for, for like, so for example, you and, and uh, Hagland agree that freedom should be the kind of guiding light for the left yeah. in terms of how it uh, sees whether or not we're, we're um, achieving our ends, right? Like, is this moving towards, right? Where do you see that kind of um, uh agreement and unity theoretically and where, so for example, for me, uh, I can get on board with lots of leftist opinions, but when I hear things like, you know what, let's just pretend racism doesn't matter. That, that's where I'm like, no, right. fuck you. Like, forget yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. you know, trans people are only 3% of the population. Let's not talk about that. Nope. Fuck yeah. you. Go away. Right. Like, so, so like for you, wh- what are the things where like, absolutely not, we, we must not do that. And then where is there this kind of unity where you can disagree collegially with comrades. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I completely agree that, um, like I, I didn't want to say, I didn't want to imply that I don't have strong political opinions as well. Right. And so for example, I, uh, I, the, um, on trans and gender issues, like I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm quite hardline, like, you know, absolutely the left ought to stand for, uh, you know, complete, um, uh, freedom and support for our, um, trans comrades and uh, brothers and sisters. And like, they, they, they didn't, they need and deserve, uh, all of our support. Um, and, and the left has to be absolutely, um, intransigent against, uh, against any sort of backsliding on racial questions, um, and on questions of nationalism. Um, in part because I, you know, I think, you know, that, that I think rests on just a terrible, um, theoretical basis. Like the, 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 the notion that you could have a, a, a national workers movement um that could um actually be a progressive force globally i think it's nonsense um so so on those things i like i'm i actually i'm absolutely i'm pretty hardline on those on those issues um at the at the theoretical level though i mean i guess the the thing that i like the reason i I think it matters to have this argument with Martin Hagland about the content of freedom um, is because um, I think that how we interpret freedom um, is going has downstream consequences for what sorts of questions we think we need to investigate um, and how we and how we I guess like how we think about um uh, what I, well, the, the politi- liberal political philosopher John Rawls has this phrase, the burdens of judgment, right? Uh, and for Rawls, and I, I actually like it. I think it's the most useful thing in Rawls, uh, is the burdens of judgment. The burdens of judgment just means that, um, you can agree on principles with people and then still, like empirical evidence is tricky and different people are going to have slightly different priorities and people are going to uh, disagree about, uh, about how to, to rank order their priorities and people are going to disagree about how to interpret the, uh, the empirical evidence and that sort of stuff. So there's going to like agreement on principles does not produce agreement on everything else. Rather, but I do think that um, agreeing on certain principles would allow us to at least articulate 
the burdens of judgment. Like allow us to get clear on what's the space within which we can reasonably disagree with one another. Um, and where can we have, as it were, comradely, uh, disagreements that center on priorities, center on different interpretations of, uh, the evidence and that are not about principles? Because I think one of the things that is particularly poisonous on the left is that um, even, you know, just question, every little question of judgment, every little question of the empirical evidence, every little question of weighting um, this fact versus this fact, do we emphasize this or do we emphasize this, becomes very quickly immediately shot through with uh, a, a, a sort of Manichaean principled, you know, you're with us or you're against us. Uh, and virtue signaling and a corresponding yeah, judgment yeah. of the person. Yeah. 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 And so, so that for me, that means like, I actually think that if we can separate these things out and if, if we can have um, a, a debate about what freedom means for us as a principle, that is not, about each and every little thing, <laughs> um, but that is a, is 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 happening at a level of of sort of theoretical generality. Um, um, that that might lead to us being better able to um, separate out um, and deal with the burdens of judgment. That's my hope. I guess. Well, it's a good hope. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah, and and thank you for participating <laughs> in that in the symposium and and here with us. I, I hope it won't be the last time you join us in conversation because I think this is what people need to be thinking about, and this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a it's been a pleasure to get to chat with you guys. I I really do enjoy uh, the podcast, and I look forward to listening to it for years to come. And thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>